Section 28 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 19, 1577-1582, Part 1. About the middle of the year 1576, Walsingham, in a letter to Sir Henry Sidney, thus writes, quote, Here at home we live in security as we were wont, grounding our quietness upon other harms. The harms here alluded to, the religious wars of France, and the revolt of the Dutch provinces from Spain, had proved indeed, in more ways than one, the safeguard of the peace of England. They furnished so much domestic occupation to the two Catholic sovereigns of Europe, most formidable by their power, their bigotry, and their unprincipled ambition, as effectually to preclude them from uniting their forces to put in execution against Elizabeth the papal sentence of deprivation, and by the opportunity which they afforded her of causing incalculable mischiefs to these princes, through the succours which she might afford to their rebellious subjects, they long enabled her to restrain both Philip and Charles within the bounds of respect and amity. But circumstances were now tending with increased velocity towards a rupture with Spain, clearly become inevitable, and in 1577 the Queen of England saw herself compelled to take steps in the affairs of the Low Countries equally offensive to that power and to France. The States of Holland, after the rejection of their sovereignty by Elizabeth, cast their eyes around in search of another protector, and Charles the Ninth, suffering his ambition and his rivalry with Philip the Second to overpower all the vehemence of his zeal for the Catholic religion, showed himself eager to become their patron. His brother, the Duke d'Alençon, doubtless with his concurrence, offered on certain terms to bring a French army for the expulsion of Don John of Austria, governor of the Low Countries, and this proposal he urged with so much importunity that the Hollanders, notwithstanding their utter antipathy to the royal family of France, seemed likely to accede to it as the lightest of that variety of evils of which their present situation offered them the choice. But Elizabeth could not view with indifference the progress of a negotiation which might eventually procure to France the annexation of these important provinces, and she encouraged the states to refuse the offers of Alençon by immediately transmitting for their service liberal supplies of arms and money to Duke Casimir, son of the Elector Palatine, then at the head of a large body of German Protestants in the Low Countries. At the same time she endeavoured to repress the Catholics in her own dominions by a stricter enforcement of the penal laws, and two or three persons in this year suffered capitally for their denial of the Queen's supremacy. These steps on the part of Elizabeth threatened to disconcert entirely the plans of the French court, but it still seemed practicable, to the King and to his brother, to produce a change in her measures, and two or three successive embassies arrived in London during the spring and summer of 1578, to renew with fresh earnestness the proposals of marriage on the part of the Duke d'Alençon. The Earl of Sussex and his party favoured this match. Leicester and all the zealous Protestants in the court and the nation opposed it. The Queen, quote, sat arbitress, end quote, and perhaps prolonged her deliberations on the question, for the pleasure of receiving homage more than usually assiduous from both factions. The favourite, anxious to secure his ascendancy by fresh efforts of gallantry and instances of devotedness, entreated to be indulged in the privilege of entertaining Her Majesty for several days at his seat of Wanstead House a recent and expensive purchase which he had been occupied in adorning with a magnificence suited to the ostentatious prodigality of his disposition. It was for the entertainment of Her Majesty on this occasion that Philip Sidney condescended to task a genius worthy of better things 
with the composition of a masque in celebration of her surpassing beauties and royal virtues, entitled The Lady of May. In defence of this public act of adulation, the young poet had probably the particular request of his uncle and patron to plead, as well as the common practice of the age, but it must still be mortifying under any circumstances to record the abasement of such a spirit to a level with the vulgar herd of Elizabethan flatterers. Unsatiated with festivities and homage, the Queen continued her progress from Wanstead through the counties of Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk, receiving the attendance of numerous troops of gentry, and making visits in her way to all who felt themselves entitled, or called, to solicit with due humility the costly honour of entertaining her. Her train was numerous and brilliant, and the French ambassadors constantly attended her motions. About the middle of August she arrived at Norwich. This ancient city, then one of the most considerable in the kingdom, yielded to none in a zealous attachment to Protestant principles and to the Queen's person. And as its remote situation had rendered the arrival of a royal visitant within its walls an extremely rare occurrence, the magistrates resolved to spare nothing which could contribute to the splendour of her reception. At the furthest limits of the city she was met by the mayor, who addressed her in a long and very abject Latin oration, in which he was not ashamed to pronounce that the city enjoyed its charters and privileges, quote, by her only clemency, end quote. At the conclusion he produced a large silver cup filled with gold pieces, saying, quote, sunt hic centum libre puri auri, end quote. Welcome sounds which failed not to reach the ear of her gracious majesty, who, lifting up the cover with alacrity, said audibly to the footman to whose care it was delivered, quote, look to it, there is a hundred pound, end quote. Pageants were set up in the principal streets, of which one at least had the merit of appropriateness, since it accurately represented the various processes employed in those woollen manufactures for which Norwich was already famous. Two days after Her Majesty's arrival, Mercury, in a blue satin doublet lined with cloth of gold, with a hat of the same garnished with wings, and wings at its feet, appeared under her chamber-window in an extraordinarily fine-painted coach, and invited her to go abroad and see more shows and a kind of mask in which venus and cupid with wantonness and riot were discomfited by the goddess of chastity and her attendants was performed in the open air a troop of nymphs and fairies lay in ambush for her return from dining with the earl of surrey and in the midst of these heathenish exhibitions the minister of the dutch church watched his opportunity to offer to her the grateful homage of his flock to these deserving strangers protestant refugees from spanish oppression the policy of elizabeth in this instance equally generous and discerning, had granted every privilege capable of inducing them to make her kingdom their permanent abode. At Norwich, where the greater number had settled, a church was given them for the performance of public worship in their own tongue, and according to the form which they preferred. An encouragement was held out to them to establish here several branches of manufacture which they had previously carried on to great advantage at home. This accession of skill and industry soon raised the woollen fabrics of england to a pitch of excellence unknown in former ages and repaid with usury to the country this exercise of public hospitality it appears that the inventing of masks pageants and devices for the recreation of the queen on her progresses had become a distinct profession george ferrer formerly commemorated as master of the pastimes to edward the sixth one goldingham and churchyard author of the worthiness of wales of some legends in the mirror for magistrates and of a prodigious quantity of verse on various subjects, were the most celebrated proficients in this branch. All three are handed down to posterity as contributors to, quote, the princely pleasures of Kenilworth, end quote. 
and the two latter as managers of the Norwich entertainments. They vied with each other in the gorgeousness, the pedantry, and the surprisingness of their devices. But the palm was surely due to him of the number who had the glory of contriving a battle between certain allegorical personages, in the midst of which, quote, legs and arms of men, well and lively wrought, were to be let fall in numbers on the ground, as bloody as might be. The combat was to be exhibited in the open air, but the skies were unpropitious, and a violent shower of rain unfortunately deprived Her Majesty of the satisfaction of witnessing the effect of so extraordinary and elegant a device. Richard Topcliffe, a Lincolnshire gentleman employed by government to collect informations against the Papists, and so much distinguished in the employment that Topcliffazair became the cant term of the day for hunting a recusant, was at this time a follower of the court, and a letter addressed by him to the Earl of Shrewsbury contains some particulars of this progress worth preserving. Quote, I did never see Her Majesty better received by two counties in one journey than Suffolk and Norfolk now. Suffolk of gentlemen and Norfolk of the meaner sort, with exceeding joy to themselves and well liking to Her Majesty. Great entertainment at the master of the rolls, greater at Kenninghall, and exceeding of all sorts at Norwich. The next good news, but in account the highest, Her Majesty hath served God with great zeal and comfortable examples, for by her counsel two notorious papists, young Rookwood, the master of Euston Hall, where Her Majesty did lie upon Sunday now a fortnight, and one Downs, a gentleman, were both committed, the one to the town prison at Norwich, the other to the county prison there, for obstinate papistry and seven more gentlemen of worship were committed to several houses in Norwich as prisoners, for badness of belief. This Rookwood is a papist of kind, newly crept out of his late wardship. Her Majesty, by some means I know not, was lodged at his house, Euston, far unmeet for Her Highness, but fitter for the blackguard. Nevertheless, the gentleman, brought into Her Majesty's presence by like device, Her Excellent Majesty gave to Rookwood ordinary thanks for his bad house, and her fair hand to kiss, after which it was braved at but my lord chamberlain nobly and gravely understanding that rookwood was excommunicated for papistry called him before him demanded of him how he durst to attempt her royal presence he unfit to accompany any christian person forthwith said he was fitter for a pair of stocks commanded him out of the court and yet to attend her counsel's pleasure and at norwich he was committed and to decipher the gentleman to the full a piece of plate being missed in the court and searched for in his hay-house in the hayrick such an image of our lady was there found as for greatness for gayness and workmanship i did never see a match and after a sort of country dances ended in her majesty's sight the idol was set behind the people who avoided she rather seemed a beast raised upon a sudden from hell by conjuring than the picture for whom it had been so often and so long abused her majesty commanded it to the fire which in her sight by the country folks was quickly done, to her content and unspeakable joy of every one, but some one or two who had sucked of the idol's poisoned milk. Shortly after, a great sort of good preachers, who had been commanded to silence for a little niceness, were licensed, and again commanded to preach. A greater and more universal joy to the countries, and the most of the court, than the disgrace of the papists, and the gentlemen of those parts, being great and hot Protestants, almost before by policy discredited and disgraced, were greatly countenanced." The letter-writer afterwards mentions in a splenetic style the envoy from Monsieur, one Bacqueville, a Norman, quote, with four or five of Monsieur's youths, end quote, who attended the Queen and were, quote, well entertained and regarded, end quote. After them, he says, came Monsieur Rambouillet from the French King, brother of the Cardinal, who had not long before written vilely against the Queen, and whose entertainment, it seemed to him, was not so good as that of the others. 
the queen was about this time deprived by death of an old and faithful counsellor in the person of sir thomas smith one of the principal secretaries of state this eminent person the author of a work quote, on the commonwealth of england end quote, still occasionally consulted and in various ways a great benefactor to letters in his day was one of the few who had passed at once with safety and credit through all the perils and revolutions of the three preceding reigns his early proficiency at college obtained for smith the patronage of henry the eighth at whose expense he was sent to complete his studies in italy and he took at padua the degree of doctor of laws resuming on his return his residence at cambridge he united his efforts with those of cheek for reforming the pronunciation of the greek language afterwards he furnished an example of attachment to his mother tongue which among classical scholars has found too few imitators by giving to the public a work on english orthography and pronunciation objects as yet almost totally neglected by his countrymen and respecting which down to a much later period no approach to system or uniformity prevailed but on the contrary a vagueness a rudeness and an ignorance disgraceful to a lettered people though educated in the civil law smith now took deacon's orders and accepted a rectory and the deanery of carlisle his principles secretly began to incline towards the reformers and he lent such protection as he was able to those who in the latter years of henry the eighth underwent persecution for the avowal of similar sentiments protector somerset patronized him under his administration he was knighted notwithstanding his deacon's orders and became the colleague of cecil as secretary of state on the accession of mary he was stripped of the lucrative offices which he held but a small pension was assigned him on condition of his remaining in the kingdom and he contrived to pass away those days of horror in an unmolested obscurity he was among the first whom mary's illustrious successor recalled to public usefulness being summoned to take his place at her earliest privy council in the important measures of the beginning of the reign for the settlement of religion he took a distinguished part afterwards he was employed with advantage to his country in several difficult embassies he was then appointed assistant and finally successor to burleigh in the same high post which they had occupied together so many years before under the reign of edward and in this station he died at the age of sixty-three no statesman of the age bore a higher character than sir thomas smith for rectitude and benevolence and nothing of the wiliness and craft conspicuous in most of his coadjutors is discernible in him there was one foible of his day however from which he was by no means exempt on certain points he was superstitious beyond the ordinary measure of learned credulity in the sixteenth century of his faith in alchemical experiments a striking instance has already occurred he was likewise a great astrologer and gave himself much concern in conjecturing what direful events might be portended by the appearance of a comet which became visible in the last year of his life during a temporary retirement from court he had also distinguished himself as a magistrate by his extraordinary diligence in the prosecution of suspected witches but the date of these and similar delusions had not yet expired great alarms were excited in the country during the year fifteen seventy seven by the prevalence of certain magical practices which were supposed to strike at the life of her majesty they were found at islington concealed in the house of a catholic priest who was a reputed sorcerer three waxen images formed to represent the queen and two of her chief counsellors other dealings also of professors of the occult sciences were from time to time discovered Quote, whether it were the effect of this magic says stripe who wrote in the beginning of the eighteenth century or proceeded from some natural cause but the queen was in some part of this year under excessive anguish by pains of her teeth insomuch that she took no rest for diverse nights and endured very great torment night and day end quote. 
in this extremity a certain quote-unquote outlandish physician was consulted who composed on the case with much solemnity of style a long latin letter in which after observing with due humility that it was a perilous attempt in a person of his slender abilities to prescribe for a disease which had caused perplexity and diversity of opinion among the skilful and eminent physicians ordinarily employed by her majesty he ventured however to suggest various applications as worthy of trial finally hinting at the expediency of having recourse to extraction on the possible failure of all other means to afford relief how this weighty matter terminated we are not here informed but it is upon record that aylmer bishop of london once submitted to have a tooth drawn in order to encourage her majesty to undergo that operation and as the promotion of the learned prelate was at this time recent and his gratitude it may be presumed still lively we may perhaps be permitted to conjecture that it was the bishop who on this occasion performed the art of exorcist the efforts of duke casimir for the defence of the united provinces had hitherto proved eminently unfortunate and in the autumn of fifteen seventy eight he judged it necessary to come over to england to apologize in person to elizabeth for the ill success of his arms and to make arrangements for the future he was very honourably received by her majesty who recollected perhaps with some little complacency that he had formerly been her suitor joustings tilts and runnings at the ring were exhibited for his entertainment and he was engaged in hunting parties in which he greatly delighted leicester loaded him with presents the earl of pembroke also complimented him with a valuable jewel the earl of huntingdon a nobleman whose religious zeal which had rendered him the peculiar patron of the puritan divines interested him also in the cause of holland escorted him on his return as far as gravesend and sir henry sidney attended him to dover the queen willingly bestowed on her princely guest the cheap distinction of the garter but her parting present of two golden cups worth three hundred pounds apiece was extorted from her after much murmuring and long reluctance by the urgency of walsingham who was anxious with the rest of his party that towards this champion of the protestant cause though unfortunate no mark of respect should be omitted the spanish and french ambassadors repined at the favours heaped on casimir but in the meantime the french faction was not inactive the earl of sussex whose generally sound judgment seems to have been warped in this instance by his habitual contrariety to leicester wrote in august fifteen seventy eight a long letter to the queen in which after stating the arguments for and against the french match he summed up pretty decidedly in its favour what was of more avail monsieur sent over to plead his cause an agent named simier a person of great dexterity who well knew how to ingratiate himself by a thousand amusing arts by a sprightly style of conversation peculiarly suited to the taste of the queen and by that ingenious flattery the talent of his nation which is seldom entirely thrown away even upon the sternest and most impenetrable natures elizabeth could not summon resolution to dismiss abruptly a suit which was so agreeably urged and in february fifteen seventy nine lord talbot sends the following information to his father quote, her majesty continueth her very good usage of m simier and all his company and he hath conference with her three or four times a week and she is the best disposed and pleasantest when she talketh with him as by her gestures appeareth that is possible he adds quote, the opinion of monsieur's coming still holdeth and yet it is secretly bruited that he cannot take up so much money as he would on such a sudden and therefore will not come so soon the influence of simier over the queen became on a sudden so potent that leicester and his party reported and perhaps believed that he had employed philters and other unlawful means to inspire her with love for his master simier on his side 
amply retaliated these hostilities by carrying to her majesty the first tidings of the secret marriage of her favourite with the countess of essex a fact which none of her courtiers had found courage to communicate to her though it must have been by this time widely known as sir francis knowles the countess's father had insisted for the sake of his daughter's reputation that the celebration of the nuptials should take place in presence of a considerable number of witnesses the rage of the queen on this disclosure transported her beyond all the bounds of justice reason and decorum it has been already remarked that she was habitually or systematically an open enemy to matrimony in general and the higher any person stood in her good graces and the more intimate their access to her the greater was her resentment at detecting in them any aspirations after this state because a kind of jealousy was in these cases superadded to her malignity and it offended her pride that those who were honoured with her favour should find themselves at leisure to covet another kind of happiness of which she was not the dispenser but that leicester the dearest of her friends the first of her favourites after all the devotedness to her charms which she had so long professed and which she had requited by a preference so marked and benefits so signal that he her opinion unconsulted her sanction unemployed should have formed and with her own near relation this indissoluble tie and having formed it should have attempted to conceal the fact from her when known to so many others appeared to her the acme of ingratitude perfidy and insult she felt the injury like a weak disappointed woman she resented it like a queen and a tutor she instantly ordered leicester into confinement in a small fort then standing in greenwich park and she threw out the menace nay actually entertained the design of sending him to the tower but the lofty and honourable mind of the earl of sussex revolted against proceedings so violent so lawless and so disgraceful in every point of view to his royal kinswoman he plainly represented to her that it was contrary to all right and all decorum that any man should be punished for lawful matrimony which was held in honour by all and his known hostility to the favourite giving weight to his remonstrance the queen curbed her anger gave up all thoughts of the tower and soon restored the earl to liberty in no long time afterwards he was readmitted to her presence and so necessary had he made himself to her majesty or so powerful in the state that she found it expedient insensibly to restore him to the same place of trust and intimacy as before though it is probable that he never entirely regained her affections and his countess for whom indeed she had never entertained any affection remained the avowed object of her utter antipathy even after the death of leicester and in spite of all the intercessions in her behalf with which her son essex in the meridian of his favour never ceased to importune his sovereign the quarrel of leicester against simier proceeded to such extremity after this affair that the latter believed his life in danger from his attempts it was even said that the earl had actually hired one of the queen's guard to assassinate the envoy and that the design had only miscarried by chance however this may be her majesty on account of the spirit of enmity displayed towards him by the people to whom the idea of the french match was ever odious found it necessary by a proclamation to take simier under her special protection it was about this time that as the queen was taking the air on the thames attended by this frenchman and by several of her courtiers a shot was fired into her barge by which one of the rowers was severely wounded some supposed that it was aimed at simier others at the queen herself but the last opinion was immediately silenced by the wise and gracious declaration of her majesty quote, that she would believe nothing of her subjects that parents would not believe of their children after due inquiry the shop was found to have been accidental and the person who had been the cause of the mischief though condemned to death was pardoned such at least is the account of the affair transmitted to us by contemporary writers 
but it still remains a mystery how the man came to be capitally condemned, if innocent, or to be pardoned, if guilty. Leicester, from all these circumstances, had incurred so much obloquy at court, and found himself so coldly treated by the Queen herself, that in a letter to Burley he offered, or threatened, to banish himself, well knowing, perhaps, that the proposal would not be accepted. While the French prince, now created Duke of Anjou, adroitly seized the moment of the Earl's disgrace, to try the effect of personal solicitations on the heart of Elizabeth. He arrived quite unexpectedly, and almost without attendance, at the gate of her palace at Greenwich, experienced a very gracious reception, and after several long conferences with the Queen alone, of which the particulars never transpired, took his leave and returned home, recommitting his cause to the skilful management of his own agent, and the discussion of his brother's ambassadors. Long and frequent meetings of the Privy Council were now held, by command of Her Majesty, for the discussion of the question of marriage, from the minutes of which some interesting details may be recovered. The Earl of Sussex was still, as ever, strongly in favour of the match, and chiefly, as it appears, from an apprehension that France and Spain might otherwise join to dethrone the Queen and set up another in her place. Lord Hunsdon was on the same side, as was also the Lord Admiral, the Earl of Lincoln, but less warmly. Burley laboured to find arguments in support of the measure, but evidently against his judgment and to please the Queen. Leicester openly professed to have changed his opinion, quote, for Her Majesty was to be followed. End quote. Sir Walter Mildmay reasoned freely and forcibly against the measure, on the ground of the too advanced age of the Queen, and the religion, the previous public conduct, and the family connections of Anjou. Sir Ralph Sadler subscribed to most of the objections of Mildmay, and brought forward additional ones. Sir Henry Sidney approved all these, and subjoined, quote, that the marriage could not be made good by all the council between England and Rome. A mass might not be suffered in the court, end quote, meaning probably that the marriage right could not by any expedient be accommodated to the consciences of both parties and the law of England. On the whole, with the single exception perhaps of the Earl of Sussex, those councillors who pronounced in favour of the marriage in this debate did so, almost avowedly, in compliance with the wishes of the Queen, whose inclination to the alliance had become very evident since the visit of her youthful suitor, while such as opposed it were moved by strong and earnest convictions of the gross impropriety and thorough unsuitableness of the match, with respect to Elizabeth herself, and the dreadful evils which it was likely to entail on the nation. How entirely the real sentiments of this body were adverse to the step, became further evident when the council, instead of immediately obeying Her Majesty's command, that they should come to a formal decision on the question, and acquaint her with the same, hesitated, temporized, assured her of their readiness to be entirely guided on a matter so personal to herself, by her feelings and wishes, requested to be further informed what these might be, and inquired whether, under all the circumstances, she was desirous of their coming to a full determination, quote, this message was reported to Her Majesty in the forenoon, end quote, October 7th, 1579, quote, and she allowed very well of the dutiful offer of their services. Nevertheless, she uttered many speeches, and that not without shedding of many tears, that she should find in her counsellors, by their long disputations, any disposition to make it doubtful whether there could be any more surety for her and her realm than to have her marry and have a child of her own body to inherit, and so to continue the line of King Henry the Eighth. And she said she condemned herself of simplicity in committing this matter to be argued by them, for that she thought to have rather had a universal request made to her to proceed in this marriage than to have made doubt of it, and being much troubled herewith, she requested, end quote, the bearers of this message, quote, to forbear her till the afternoon, end quote. On their return, she repeated her former expressions of displeasure. 
then endeavoured at some length to refute the objections brought against the match, and finally her, quote, great misliking, end quote, of all opposition, and her earnest desire for the marriage, being reported to her faithful counsel, they agreed, after long consultations, to offer her their services in furtherance of it, should such really be her pleasure. But the country possessed some men less obsequious than privy councillors, who could not endure to stand by in silence, and behold the great public interests here at stake, surrendered in slavish deference to the fond fancy of a romantic woman, caught by the image of a passion which she was no longer of an age to inspire, and which she ought to have felt it an indecorum to entertain. Of this number, to his immortal honour, was Philip Sidney. This young gentleman bore at the time the courtly office of cup-bearer to the Queen, and was looking for further advancement at her hands, and as on a former occasion he had not scrupled to administer some food to her preposterous desire of personal admiration, Elizabeth, when she applied to him for his opinion on her marriage, assuredly did so in the hope and expectation of hearing from him something more graceful to her ears than the language of truth and wisdom. But Sidney had beheld with his own eyes the horrors of the Paris massacre. He had imbibed with all the eagerness of a youthful and generous mind the principles of his friend the excellent Hubert Languet, one of the ablest advocates of the Protestant cause, and he had since, on his embassy to Germany and Holland, enjoyed the favour and contemplated the illustrious virtues of William, Prince of Orange, its heroic champion. To this sacred cause the purposed marriage must prove, as he well knew, deeply injurious, and to the reputation of his sovereign, fatal. This was enough to decide his judgment and his conduct, and magnanimously disdaining the suggestions of a selfish and servile policy, he replied to the demand of Her Majesty, by a letter of dissuasion, almost a remonstrance, at once the most eloquent and the most courageous piece of that nature which the age can boast. Every important view of the subject is comprised in this letter, which is long, but at the same time so condensed in style, and so skilfully compacted as to matter, that it well deserves to be read entire, and must lose materially either by abridgment or omission. Yet it may be permitted to detach from political reasonings, foreign to the nature and object of this work, a few sentences referring more immediately to the personal character of Anjou, and displaying in a strong light the enormous unfitness of the connection, and also the animated and affectionate conclusion by which the writer seems desirous to atone for the enunciation of so many unwelcome truths. Quote, these, speaking of Her Majesty's Protestant subjects, these, how will their hearts be galled, if not aliened, when they shall see you take a husband, a Frenchman and a Papist, in whom, howsoever fine wits may find further dealings or painted excuses, the very common people well know this, that he is the son of a Jezebel of our age, that his brother made oblation of his own sister's marriage, the easier to make massacres of our brethren in belief, that he himself, contrary to his promise and all gratefulness, having his liberty and principal estate by the Huguenots' means, did sack la charité, and utterly spoiled them with fire and sword. This, I say, even at first sight, gives occasion to all truly religious to abhor such a master, and consequently to diminish much of the hopeful love they have long held to you. Now the agent party, which is monsieur, whether he be not apt to work on the disadvantage of your estate, he is to be judged by his will and power, his will to be as full of light ambition as is possible, besides the French disposition and his own education, his inconstant temper against his brother, his thrusting himself into the low-country matters, his sometimes seeking the King of Spain's daughter, sometimes your Majesty, are evident testimonies of his being carried away with every wind of hope, taught to love greatness any way gotten, and having for the motioners and ministers of the mind only such young men as have showed they think evil contentment a ground of any rebellion, who have seen no commonwealth but in faction, 
and diverse of which have defiled their hands in odious murders. With such fancies and favourites what is to be hoped for, or that he will contain himself within the limits of your conditions? Against contempt, if there be any, which I will never believe, let your excellent virtues of piety, justice, and liberality daily, if it be possible, more and more shine. Let such particular actions be found out, which be easy, as I think, to be done, by which you may gratify all the hearts of your people. Let those in whom you find trust, and to whom you have committed trust, in your weighty affairs, be held up in the eyes of your subjects. Lastly, doing as you do, you shall be as you be, the example of princes, the ornament of this age, and the most excellent fruit of your progenitors, and the perfect mirror of your posterity." Such had ever been the devoted loyalty of Philip Sidney towards Elizabeth, and so high was the place which he held in her esteem, that she appears to have imputed the boldness of this letter to no motives but good ones, and instead of resenting his interference in so delicate a matter, she is thought to have been deeply moved by his eloquence, and even to have been influenced by it in the formation of her final resolve. But far other success attended the efforts of a different character, who laboured with equal zeal, equal reason, and probably not inferior purity of intention, though for less courtliness of address, to deter rather than dissuade her from the match, on grounds much more offensive to her feelings, and by means of what was then accounted a seditious appeal to the passions and prejudices of the nation. The work alluded to was entitled, quote, The Discovery of a Gaping Gulf Wherein England is Like to be Swallowed by Another French Marriage, If the Lord Forbid Not the Bands by Letting Her See the Sin and Punishment Thereof. End quote. Its author was a gentleman named Stubbs, then of Lincoln's Inn, and previously of Bennet College, Cambridge, where we are told that his intimacies had been formed among the more learned and ingenious class of students, and where the poet Spencer had become his friend. He was known as a zealous Puritan, and had given his sister in marriage to the celebrated Edmund Cartwright, the leader of the sect. It is probable that neither his religious principles nor this connection were forgotten by the Queen in her estimate of his offence. A furious proclamation was issued against the book, all the copies of which were ordered to be seized and burned, and the author and publisher being proceeded against on a severe statute of Philip and Mary, which many lawyers held to be no longer in force, were found guilty, and condemned to the barbarous punishment of amputation of the right hand. The words of Stubbs on being brought to the scaffold to undergo his sentence have been preserved and well merit transcription. Quote, what a grief it is to the body to lose one of his members you all know. I am come hither to receive my punishment according to the law. I am sorry for the loss of my hand, and more sorry to lose it by judgment. But most of all with Her Majesty's indignation and evil opinion, whom I have so highly displeased. Before I was condemned, I might speak for my innocency. But now my mouth is stopped by judgment, to the which I submit myself, and am content patiently to endure whatsoever it pleaseth God, of his secret providence, to lay upon me, and to take it justly deserved for my sins. And I pray God it may be an example to you all, that it being so dangerous to offend the laws, without an evil meaning, as breedeth the loss of a hand, you may use your hands holily, and pray to God for the long preservation of Her Majesty over you, whom God hath used as an instrument for a long peace and many blessings over us, and specially for His gospel, whereby she hath made a way for us to rest and quietness to our consciences. For the French I force not, but my greatest grief is in so many weeks and days of imprisonment, Her Majesty hath not once thought me worthy of her mercy, which she hath oftentimes extended to diverse persons in greater offences. For my hand I esteem it not so much, for I think I could have saved it, and might do yet, 
but I will not have a guiltless heart and an infamous hand. I pray you all to pray with me, that God will strengthen me to endure and abide the pain that I am to suffer, and grant me this grace, that the loss of my hand do not withdraw any part of my duty and affection toward Her Majesty, and because when so many veins of blood are opened, it is uncertain how they may be stayed, and what will be the event thereof." The hand ready on the block to be stricken off, he said often to the people, quote, "'Pray for me now my calamity is at hand.'" And so with these words it was smitten off, whereof he swounded." In this speech, the language of which is so remarkably contrasted with those abject submissions which fear extorted from the high-born victims of the tyranny of Henry VIII, the attentive reader will discern somewhat of the same spirit which combated popery and despotism under the Stuarts, though tempered by that loyal attachment towards the restorer and protectress of reformed religion, which dwelt in the hearts of all the Protestant subjects of Elizabeth, without exception. After the execution of the more painful part of his sentence, Stubbs was further punished by an imprisonment of several months in the tower. But under all these afflictions his courage and his cheerfulness were supported by a firm persuasion of the goodness of the cause in which he suffered. He wrote many letters to his friends with the left hand, signing them Scavola, a surname which it was his pleasure to adopt in memory of a circumstance by which he did not feel himself to be the person dishonoured. Such was the opinion entertained by Burley of the theological learning of this eminent person, and the soundness of his principles, that he engaged him in 1587 to answer Cardinal Allen's violent book entitled The English Justice, a task which he is said to have performed with distinguished ability. During the whole year of 1580 the important question of the Queen's marriage remained in an undecided state. The Court of France appears to have suffered the treaty to languish, and Elizabeth, conscious no doubt that her fond inclination could only be gratified at the expense of that popularity which it had been the leading object of her policy to cherish, sought not to revive it. Various circumstances occurred to occupy public attention during the interval. End of section 28